We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. Their intention to rule rests with the annihilation of consciousness. We have been lulled into a trance. They have made us indifferent to ourselves, to others. Please understand they are safe as long as they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us asleep, keep us selfish, keep us sedated. Welcome to Now Playing's review of John Carpenter's They Live. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Hosted by Marjorie. I've got one that can see. Arnie. You ain't the first son of a bitch to wake up out of their dream. And Jacob. Oh, you take your sunglasses off. We're all human in here. All the sex and violence on the screen has gone too far for me. I'm fed up with it. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Life's a bitch. She's back in heat. Listener discretion is advised. Come on, I'll show you around. Take a look. Today we're discussing They Live, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper. I really never thought we'd do a podcast with him. <laughs> Keith David and Meg Foster. Hey, what's wrong, baby? It's just me, Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. And this is Marjorie. This is Jacob, and the world needs a wake-up call. We're going to podcast it in. I can't wait till 50 minutes into this, Jacob, when you and I just beat the living shit out of each other. <laughs> After Marjorie cocks me upside the head with a bottle. Yeah, now we know why Rowdy Roddy Piper's in this film. There was a wrestling scene. <laughs> well, first, let's just talk about we are doing a bonus Friday podcast, They Live, because we wanted to make sure everyone was aware. And just in case you aren't listening to our Fast and Furious retrospective, and you should, spoiler alert, every host is giving at least one green arrow before the day is done. I think every host gives at least two green arrows before the day is done. But in case fast cars and booty shorts aren't your thing, last week we did a review of The Incredibles. That skews towards one whole segment of our audience. And now we're going to do a horror movie that skews towards the other segment of our audience. I think we've got everybody covered now between cars, booty shorts, superheroes, and horror, and sci-fi. And that's so that we can get the message out to all of you about our Kickstarter campaign, which we only have 12 days left. And we really need your help to hit our stretch goal. Yeah, we already got the ebook format. Now we want to put out an audiobook version. A lot of you have asked for that. So we said, hey, if we could hit this stretch goal, we'll have the resources to be able to do that. And then we want a professionally published, printed, and bound version of this book in soft cover and hardcover. And that's why we have that stretch goal for. And I do really want to thank the, as of this recording, 568 people who have come out and supported this Kickstarter campaign and gotten us past our base goal. You guys really, really rock. And all of us are just completely blown away by your support. But I'd really like to see a lot more people get on board so that we can hit this stretch goal. You know, we're listening to your feedback. People said, well, we want an audiobook. 
We're trying to record an audiobook. People said, we want printed books. We're trying to get a printed book. People said, make exclusive podcasts as a reward. We weren't going to do that, but enough people asked for it. So now there are exclusive podcasts you can only hear if you back the Kickstarter from A Clockwork Orange to Xanadu, A through X. <laughs> quite the spectrum there and quite the spectrum for our book. Underrated movies we recommend. I mean, these are films that we're all excited about, the films that we're reviewing. That doesn't always happen. I reference Fast and the Furious. You guys all heard Stuart on that first one. And second and one. The second one. And, <laughs> well, we'll see how long it goes. But those are all films we're excited about. And, well, I, I guess we could say it now. They live. Is this going to be in the book? It is. If you notice, we've kind of switched up our host. So that's because... There was almost a They Live style brutal match about which now playing host is the bigger fan of They Live, Marjorie or Jacob. I'm here as like the ref. I love this movie. So if it's on TV, I watch it. And I think I could quote it at one time with my brother word for word. I, I don't know if I could quote it word for word, but I know all the big lines. I know all the popular ones. You know, I originally saw this. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it a few years after it was out. But I saw this because in 1988, when it came out, I was way into the WWF and the stars Rowdy Roddy Piper. And so I remember this getting promoted during Saturday morning wrestling. And I'm like, oh, that looks cool. It's Rowdy Piper beating up aliens or something. Well, that's exactly why we saw it is my brother was a huge WWF, WWE, or whatever it was called at the time, fan. Like so much so we would have to go to wrestling when it came to our town. And this was a big deal to see this movie with Rowdy Roddy Piper. So I'm the newbie here. <laughs> Sorry. I knew of They Live when it came out. I was getting into entertainment. We had some station. I can't remember what it was called, but it was similar to what would become E! And it had, like, movie trailer shows. Like, it, you'd actually sit down for an entire television show that was nothing but commercials for movies separated by commercials for other movies. I remember that. Yeah, they just played trailers the whole time. Yeah, they called it the trailer park, I think. <laughs> and They Live was heavily advertised on that station. And I kind of knew who John Carpenter was. I was starting to become more familiar with names of horror. But come on, a wrestling guy? I don't really want to see this movie. I became aware of the lines from this movie because of Duke Nukem 3D, the video game that just stole every Bruce Campbell and Roddy Roddy Piper line in the world and made it Duke Nukem dialogue. Yeah, I do feel like this is an underrated film. That's why Marjorie's picked it for the book. It's so quotable. It's a cult classic, but people kind of know it for the lines. I don't know if this film gets the recognition it gets, though. I'm not seeing it for the very first time. I saw it because Marjorie was such an uber fan, and she kind of movie shamed me when we started dating because <laughs> I'd never seen it. And one night, she was watching it on, like, one of those movie stations. I was coming to bed when the movie was just starting, but that's the only time I had seen this movie until this watching. So I'm the closest thing to a newbie we have. And I am going to concede this bout. It, it does sound like Marjorie's the bigger fan. I've seen this a handful of times. It, it's actually been quite a number of years since I've watched it last. Well, what's funny is we watched it for this to, you know, I wanted to fresh my mind. Arnie needed to watch it in its entirety, but I'd actually just seen it maybe about like three weeks ago on TV. <laughs> so I knew this very well. And it's a really great movie, though. 
Yeah, that was before we knew it was going to win the poll. Honestly, my money was on Usual Suspects. I think that's the most popular film in the poll we did. I was rooting for Shocker. So since that didn't win, that's now a Kickstarter podcast because I really just want to make Stuart watch Shocker. (laughs) But They Live was far and away the biggest one. Now, this poll was underrated horror movies. John Carpenter is considered a master of horror. Do you guys consider this a horror movie? At the age I was when this came out, I was at our local video store renting the entire horror section one movie at a time. But I never considered this horror because to me, it always reminded me of the television series V, which I didn't consider horror, but I guess it is. I guess I always thought it was sci-fi. Yeah, I would categorize this more as sci-fi than horror. I mean, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing, that's definitely a sci-fi horror film. Like, there's sci-fi elements with an alien, but that is played for scares. These aliens, they're scary looking. Like, I would definitely love, just like Arnie has a a molding of Howard the Duck's head, I would love one of these They Live masks. I mean, they are (laughs) scary and creepy, but I don't know if I'm ever jumping out of my seat during this. They always look to me like if you rip Chuck E. Cheese's face off, that's what he would look like underneath. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and I guess if you find Reaganomics scary, you might find this to be a horror (laughs) film. And Marjorie being the fan she is, informed me of something I didn't know. We actually watched this last night for this review, and all of a sudden, wham, I get hit upside the head. This is not an original John Carpenter movie. This isn't his own brainchild. This is based off of a short story, 8 o'clock in the morning, by Ray Nelson. And I had no clue this was a short story. I actually went out and read it today so that I could compare and contrast the two. And the story, written in the 60s, really kind of close to the movie. I never read the book. It's one of those things I always meant to get to, but I knew it was there. Because I always like to go back and read things that they're based on, and this escaped me as a child, probably because there was no internet. Yeah, I mean, it was published in the 60s, so you would have had a hard time in the 80s when this came out probably finding a copy. And it's not a book. It is a very, very short story. It is maybe two or three pages. It was adapted to a comic in the mid-80s, and that's what John Carpenter saw and went. He wanted to make a movie out of that. Ray Nelson actually was a friend and had co-authored stuff with Philip K. Dick. I was going to say, this sounds like a lot of our Philip K. Dick stuff, where we took some short stories and turned them uh, in some bad movies. There were some good ones, but there's I remember that Nicolas Cage film. That was not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one was... Someone could try to argue that's underrated. Good luck. <laughs> and that's not even the worst one in that series. I still think the Ben Affleck one. <laughs> oh, man. I don't want to revisit that retrospective. But... That's kind of how this went. This was a short story about a man who was just at a stage show. The short story starts when the stage show ends. And it was one of those hypnosis shows, you know, where people do silly things and all of that. I'm sure we've all seen those. And where you they make you not able to remember a word or whatever. It starts when the show ends and the hypnotist wakes him up and wakes him up fully. And he's able to see all of a sudden that we are surrounded by aliens, which the story calls fascinators. And since we don't have a name for them in the movie, that's what I'm going to refer to them as, is the fascinators. (laughs) All right, I'll try to remember that. Fascinators are these aliens. 
And the reason they were called that is because they have the ability to hypnotize or fascinate humans into believing they are human and that we don't see their messages. But a lot of the stuff in here, signs that when he wakes up, he realizes suddenly starts saying marry and reproduce or obey. All of that is straight out of this novel and he grabs a gun and starts going on a rampage to try to overthrow them, but not sure how. The reason it's called 8 o'clock in the morning is because the fascinators somehow become aware of what he's doing and give him a hypnotic suggestion, you will die at exactly 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And so he thinks he's fooled them, but that's kind of his deadline. He's not sure what he can do in one day to overthrow their rule. It goes in a very different direction, but there is still some stuff about televisions and TV waves being used for the propaganda. So back in the 60s, Nelson saw what Carpenter sees in the 80s, and I dare say nobody would really still argue with today. If anything, I think the blatant manipulation of the people by the advertising agencies, the politicians, and the media is more transparent, yet more pervasive than ever. Yeah, I'll say, I think Carpenter came a little bit late. Cronenberg covered a lot of this ground in Videodrome, which came out a few years earlier, but all about television and we're being manipulated by it and sending out like diseases through the TV. Of course, Cronenberg's take is very surreal. Carpenter's, I mean, what I love about Carpenter, he's, he's just so raw in a lot of his films, just doesn't have a big budget. He's got enough money to hire a wrestler, but th there's something just so blunt about the way Carpenter goes about his political messages that I, I just like it. It just feels so punk to me. And Carpenter, we have covered him on the show many times before. Halloween, of course, we did that whole retrospective series way back in, I think, 2009. And then Jacob, UI and Stewart did the Thing retrospective series, still probably my favorite Carpenter film. And then an Easter egg that very few people even knew about until we announced it on the Kickstarter as a reward. Yeah, we're finally admitting there's Easter egg podcasts thanks to this Kickstarter. But we did, for a very, very low number of listeners, release Prince of Darkness, the second part of his Apocalypse trilogy. It started with The Thing, went to Prince of Darkness. Someday, maybe we'll finish that off. I don't know. But They Live, I could see this as part of it. I mean, in many ways, this is similar to The Thing. We have an alien invasion where the aliens look like us. And I don't know why the main role isn't Kurt Russell, Roddy Roddy Piper plays a very good Snake Plissken kind of <laughs> role here. Kurt, what was he busy doing? Overboard by this time? He's moving into family comedies? This was a time period where my mother thought he was hot. So I had to see a lot of these movies. That is my recollection of those. <laughs> is that this is his beefcake and heartthrob period. But Carpenter apparently met Rowdy Roddy Piper at WrestleMania 7 and thought, this is a guy I want to work with. I will say, I, I, I've i seen Roddy Piper in two other television performances. One was Trading Spouses, Celebrity Edition. Uh, surprisingly down-to-earth gentleman, like, lives out, like, on some farm in Oregon or something, just keeps to himself. But then if you've ever watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where he plays the maniac, and just this, like, psycho version of, I guess, himself. Very funny, great comedic actor. I, I guess he's taken some lessons. We'll, we'll talk about his acting in this film in a little bit. The only thing I know him from other than this is I did listen to the commentary here. He's a gregarious guy who apparently upset 
Vince McMahon Jr. and company by doing this non WWE approved film. But <laughs> it was a big deal to do this because I know that Vince McMahon was controlling a lot of the wrestlers. Like it was this agreement that you did. And it was a big deal to see someone outside of that because they pretty much controlled everyone's life. And a lot of people came down on that after the fact at the out of the cult of wrestling, if you will. So he's the Lorne Michaels of wrestling. Yes. Rowdy, are you talking about underrated? He was always like the underrated wrestler to me. He, he never was the draw of a macho man or a Hulk Hogan. Was he the one who wore the skirt or the, the kilt? Yeah, yeah. He, he had the kilt. He had Piper's Pit where he would do the interviews. I mean, that's where we got to see Andre turn on Hulk Hogan leading up to WrestleMania three. That was a big deal. But he always, he always had that showman side. He wasn't always just the wrestler, but he always did these interviews and things before the fights. I always got the impression that he wasn't a stupid person because some people think that every one of these guys is just a brainless idiot, but he seemed to be very aware and very calculated. He was media savvy. In fact, some of the lines in this movie are his lines. The kick ass and chew bubble gum. His line, he apparently kept a journal of what he considered great lines that he could drop in interviews and pre-fight talk. And he gave that book to John Carpenter and he's flipping through. He's like, kick ass and chew bubblegum. That's in the script. Come on, life's a bitch and she's back in heat. There are some great lines. <laughs> well, Arnie, I had some bubblegum and I saw the movie and I'm all out of bubblegum. So why don't you tell us about the movie? John Nada. Is his name ever even said in the movie? It is not. No, I don't know it's where you not. Got, I don't know where you got John. I don't know where you got John either. IMDb is just nada. Commentary. <laughs> Doesn't count. Not canon. And wiki. <laughs> Do you have a better name for him? Did you see him as a Mike or a, or a Tony? In eight o'clock in the morning, it's George Nada. So that is the name Nada, even though it means nothing in Spanish is straight out of that original short story. I was wondering if it was like a Odyssey reference. I, I was looking for Odyssey uh, parallels here. When he goes, Odysseus goes by, what, my name is nothing. But I guess that's not the case. <laughs> Nada, played by Roddy Piper, is looking for employment in Los Angeles. <laughs> Finding a job on a construction site, Nada befriends co-worker Frank, played by Keith David. Not David Keith. Two very different actors. But Nada starts to notice strange things, like the TV signal at the hobo camp where Frank and Nada live is interrupted by a bearded man spouting conspiracy theories. Nada also notices Gilbert, the leader of his shantytown, going in and out of the church across the street. Nada investigates and finds the church is a front for a group of people organizing a resistance. But a resistance against what? The resistance movement is broken up by a police raid where people are brutally beaten. Nada hides from the cops, and then when the coast clears, he goes back to the church where he finds a single box. He steals it, but inside are just sunglasses. He throws away the box, but keeps a single pair. But when he looks through the glasses, he sees advertisements and just words to obey and consume. And some of the people who walk among us are ghoulish aliens that look like faces with their skin ripped off. Nada realizes that these aliens have infiltrated our society's upper class and use a satellite to make them look human to us. All the while, they beam controlling signals through our televisions, our magazines, and advertisements. He even sees flying saucers that track his every movement. Nada kills several aliens and becomes wanted for murder. He takes hostage Holly, a cable news assistant director played by Meg Foster. But Holly cold cocks Nada with a bottle, and he loses his glasses, but escapes the cops. He returns to the trash to gather more glasses and to convince his friend Frank to look through them. Frank 
thinking Nada a murderer, refuses, so Nada forces the issue in one of the most famous brawls in cinema history. It is a balls-out fight. Nada finally forces the glasses on his friend, and Frank sees through the alien illusions. They team up with the other freedom fighters, and a war breaks out. During the war, Nada and Frank escape through a portal and end up in a gala ballroom where the alien and human elite are celebrating success. The end of this movie gets really fucking nuts. But... <laughs> Because in the same building is the home of Cable 54, where <laughs> Holly works. Frank and Nada kill the aliens and make their way to the roof to destroy the alien transmitter. And Holly pretends to join them, but kills Frank and Nada shoots Holly in return. He takes out the alien satellite dish, and though he's gunned down on the cable station's rooftop, he has ruined the alien illusion. People all across Los Angeles see the aliens for what they really are, as credits roll. Now... Just starting this movie, I have to give props, as I think I do every time we cover a John Carpenter film, to the John Carpenter score. <laughs> this one is awesome. We had the two subwoofers going. I thought things were going to fall off shelves. The entire score is just about bass. I do love Carpenter. He actually recently released an album called Lost Themes, which are just made up themes for movies that have never come out. It's amazing. I love his synth scores. This one, it does have a different feel. It has this synth bass, but it's, it's, I called it the hobo theme. Like we see Rowdy walking around with his backpack and it's got this like twangy feel to it. At one point, it almost feels like a Western song, but it does have that synth always going underneath with that bass. Yeah, it screams 80s, though. I love it, because it doesn't detract from the movie. It's just kind of there and adds to the mood without you realizing it. I don't know that I ever realized it as much as when watching it this time, because we had the subwoofers turned up. I've been watching Fast and Furious films. I need that bass to <laughs> make it feel like the engine's revving, and so I can get that crunk music all loud. Brother Jaru! <laughs> <laughs> And so this score, yeah, when it started rattling me out of my seat, I really paid attention. But no, this one is another Carpenter classic score. No matter what else I think of this movie, his score is aces. It has its moments where it gets a little funky, but no, he always does good music for me. As for what's going on here, we're obviously on the streets of Los Angeles. It's obviously the 80s. And Roddy Roddy Piper looks like he just came from a camping trip with that giant backpack. Maybe he's a survivor of the stand. He's walked all the way to L.A. Yeah, he's a drifter. How much walking has he done to drift from Denver to Los Angeles? I don't think he has a car. He could have hitchhiked. I'm telling you, he's a hobo. He's been riding the rails. Yeah, he was at the unemployment office. There was a big job board. The lady was doing the intake to see what kind of benefits he could get, and they do job placement. He said the banks all dried up, and I thought he was always saying that's why he was out of work is because they just had a really shit economy, and businesses closed, banks went out of business, and so he's moving around. It was very much with the times, though. If you look at what happened in the early 80s with, like, Detroit, which is where Frank's from, and... In many other industrial areas, which I don't know if Denver's industrial, I just think they smoke lots of weed. Sorry, Denver, invite me over, call me. <laughs> but I, I always imagine he did some sort of industrial work and that was his reasoning for it. That said, as you pointed out, this would make a whole lot more sense if set in 1981 than when this movie came out in 1988, because by then, didn't everyone have money thanks to Reaganomics and trickle-down economics? But you're assuming it's 1988 when the movie came out. The 80s could be any 
time in there. I, I don't take this as a late 80s piece because the late 80s is more about excess and outdoing everyone and yuppies. And the early 80s was all about depression because look at the movies that were set in the early 80s, such as Mr. Mom. Auto executive gets put out of job. Gung-ho. Exactly. Michael Keaton, I guess we're big fans of <laughs> depression movies, but... What I'm saying is there's nothing to say that this movie was set in the late 80s. And you're also assuming trickle-down economics worked there. I, that, we won't get into that kind of debate here, but I think if this was taking place in 88, yeah, it's a little bit too late. The economy was on the rebound. I think it was really the first term of Reagan's administration where the economy was really down in the dumps. And I'm going to say this is taking place during Reagan. Like at one point, we'll see one of these fascinators giving a political speech saying it's morning in America ripped straight from Reagan's ad campaigns when he was running for president. But I think Carpenter, he's going off of this feel for the 80s. Yeah, sure, if you're middle class, maybe you weren't hurting all the way until 88. But I think a lot of people still were. And this is all about the little guy. It's the middle class, the upper class. We're going to, we can be bought off by these fascinators. It's the homeless, the destitute that aren't going to ever see the light. Well, actually, later in this movie, one of the homeless does see the light and gets bought off by a fascinator. But Carpenter did go into this in the commentary. I won't reiterate him word for word, but what he said inspired him to make this was Reaganomics and the fact that his ideas that the middle and lower classes were supportive of the Republican Party, who obviously his ideas have no desire to help those people. They want to help the wealthy. And he would think that people would vote in their own self-interest. And the fact that they were supportive of Reagan and then supportive of Bush 12 years of Republican presidency, he wanted to make a very left political statement with this movie. And it is a barely veiled allegory, right? The fascinators are the Republicans. You've got somebody there talking about the destruction of the middle class. This, these are still things we're hearing about in the news today. Yeah, th this is all criticism you could hear about the right today that why, why do poor people support Republicans still? Because they're not for them, they're for the rich. I mean, this is I don't, a timeless issue. And I, I, again, I, we're not saying we agree or disagree with these politics. We don't want that to be the point of this podcast. But yeah, that's why I say this is a very punk rock film. It is blunt. Its politics are on its sleeve. There is nothing subtle in this film. It is going to hit you over the head with its politics, with its message. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. I do find it funny though, because if this is left wing, it's also got a bad opinion of the unions. Like, Nada's going to finally get a job at a construction site, and they're like, well, you got to get in with the union people, and it flashes over to the union guys, and they're all kind of just sitting around eating their lunch and not working. Yeah, but keep in mind, the unions are what a lot of people attributed to the downfall of big industry, too. And keep in mind, John Carpenter is a Hollywood filmmaker who has to work with unions. With unions, yes. <laughs> So he may just be taking a swipe at the Screen Actors Guild and the Gaffers Guild and... Bob's Cookies Guild. Stunt Guilds, every guild, right? Just the, the Gilded Guilds. The Lollipop Guild. <laughs> but it is kind of an interesting opening because I can't think of any other movie off the top of my head that stars a homeless protagonist. Are there any movies where the star is homeless other than Happiness starring Will Smith? Ah, happiness. That's a good one, though. 
Yeah, it, it's not a common thing. I, I don't know if you necessarily want to identify with the homeless. So Hollywood execs were like, yeah, don't put homeless people in those positions. People won't want to see that film. It's a downer. But he was a very clean homeless person. He was freshly homeless. Yeah, they had a nice little society built up in their hobo town. <laughs> they had an organization to it. Everybody had assigned jobs, it appeared. But that was hobo town number two. The first night, he's just in a hobo town where it is all the dirty people. And then at the job site, he meets Frank, who's like, you need a place to eat and have a warm shower. I think he's taken up to like a hotel or an apartment building or maybe even his own place just so this guy can crash until the first paycheck. But these guys are construction workers. I think that they'd be able to make more. I know it is L.A. Jacob, you can tell me what the cost of living is out there, but too much. Can't you afford more than half a tent? There's actually, at the time of recording this, a fascinating story in CNN about being homeless in California and making over $100,000 a year because that's a very real thing. Yeah, no. To be comfortable in the L.A. area, I, I'm I'm going to say quarter of a million. To be comfortably middle class, like, it's an expensive place to live. I mean, this is, again, in 88, it was probably still above the curve for most major cities. So, yeah, I could see a construction job. I don't know how much he's making. It's all under the table, so he's not paying taxes. So he's taking a little bit more home. And the construction boss, he even says, you're not getting paid till next Thursday. I don't know what day it is. Rowdy's never going to go back to work. <laughs> Maybe it's a Friday, but he doesn't have a paycheck yet. He's still waiting for that money to come in. Yeah, but Frank apparently, did he just start too? <laughs> I mean, Frank's living in the shanty town. Yeah, but Frank, he's got a family back in Detroit. And so I took this as maybe he was sending that money home so they could pay their rent or they could save up and try to come out to L.A. to join them. Uh, but, it, yeah, sure, you could get a hotel, a bad hotel. They're going to stay in a bad hotel later on in this film. It does seem weird. Again, I, I think this is Carpenter just being blunt and pinning everything right on the nose to make a point. Yeah, I also thought that Frank was living there only so he could send more money home to his wife and kids. A lot of times, and you see this especially in the immigrant population now, where you have one person who goes and works and then sends money home to the remaining family members so they can make the journey or live comfortably at home. And once they get enough to get on their feet, that person then goes back. It's kind of a weird relationship we get between Nada and Frank, though. I'm just going to say, it's homoerotic. Like, it starts off with Nada, Rowdy Piper, no shirt, like, jackhammering away at that construction site. And that's when Frank takes notice of him. And it's like, hey, I got a place you could stay if you want. You can't have a movie with Rowdy Roddy Piper without him taking off his shirt. He was never Hulk Hogan or Macho Man. He was never the one with the physique. But he's pretty built. He is huge in this. I don't remember him being that big when he was wrestling. Yeah, he always looked big because he always would wear his kilt and he had the little shirt he'd wear and his guns were always busting out of the sleeves. But... You're right. It, it is kind of a homoerotic thing. Takes off his shirt. And he's all sweaty and he's in the sun. Too bad he's not an attractive man. But <laughs> Frank then says, hey, you want to I got a place you can get a warm shower and a warm meal. Well, I thought when I was young that Frank was hitting on him. All right. I never, ever had thought either of these men were hitting on the other one. I mean, you get two manly men, Keith David and Roddy Piper. But the fact that Roddy, like, says, I don't want your help, and then trails him? I, I'm pleased playing coy. 
he drops a line like he he never just takes anyone word for it. He he wanted to check out this place. It's a shanty town. It's it's a population of homeless people. Like I thought they were going to a homeless shelter. No, it's Tarp set up his tents and a I guess a church across the street where they're making food for them to eat. I really thought he was going to drop him off at said church the first time and that then he was going to go on to his little home. Yeah, I did too. I didn't think Frank would live there. I have to ask if there would be some irony, though, because in that shanty town, I noticed a prevalence of Colt 45 signs. Would it be unethical for this movie to take a paid product placement? <laughs> I didn't notice the signs, but that would make sense with the fascinators. That's you know, Maybe those aren't such subliminal messages. Hey, drink this stuff and stay poor. In addition, though, there's a whole lot of political talk here. We get the blind preacher... We see the bearded man. Almost nobody in this movie has names. If they have a name, they never say the name. So we're pretty much referring to people by their actors' names and their general physical appearance. But coming in and just saying things like, the whole idea is a game. The name of the game is make it through life. But everyone in the game is out for themselves, but has it in it for you at the same time. I mean, there's just so much going on here. And it is not fast-paced at the beginning. This movie takes its sweet time. It's only a 90-minute movie, and about 25 minutes of it are literally nada in L.A. life. And I don't mean the club scene. <laughs> I mean working at the construction site, seeing some weird shit on television, and doing reconnaissance on a church. Yeah, we're not going to get the fascinators right away, but it doesn't seem slow-paced to me. It's It sets up this character, what he's trying to do, gives him a reason to join the shantytown, and then it starts building a mystery. Like, why do the homeless have TVs they can watch? No, <laughs> but they ha they're watching a television, and you're getting pirated signals coming in, warning people. There's stuff going on at the church, and Nada's wondering, well, what are you guys doing, dishes at 4 a.m.? They are building up this mystery, yeah, as we're watching... What it's like to be homeless in L.A. But is this really what it's like to be homeless? I can't imagine that all of L.A.'s homeless are this well showered and chiseled. <laughs> no, actually, today they just shot someone in L.A. Skid Row. So, no. Yeah, but there are huge Skid Row. I, it's like 1,700 homeless people. I mean, there are these kind of towns in L.A., but no, they're not. You're not going to find a Rowdy Roddy Piper there. Hey, I've been in a shanty town. It was called Occupy Wall Street. It smelled bad, and no one looked well-showered or ready to go to work. But they had a library. <laughs> and not that I agree or disagree with their reason for being there, but I just say I literally did walk through their town and smell them. But I just think as the non-fan here, this first 20 minutes, it doesn't draw out enough mystery. There's too much repetitiveness of... Random people spouting paranoid things. I would expect this in the shantytown, not as he's walking to and from the shantytown or on the television. The most interesting thing is the bearded man on television, just because he keeps talking about their signal being too strong and all of that. You know that's really important, whereas you may not realize the preacher is. See, and I like the little details, like when that bearded man hacks into the television, whenever he 
is talking, those few seconds that he's able to do that, people start getting headaches because you, that alien signal is being broken. And I, I like those little details here that are going on in the background. You probably don't even catch them the first time you're watching. No, and it really adds to the mystery when you have this crazy guy breaking into the TV signal. All these people want to do is drink their Colt 45s and relax at their shanty town. And I think that really builds into something there, especially since he's doing it right across the street. Did you guys notice the main bum who's watching the TV? Did you recognize him? Is it the one from UHF? No, no, but it is another bum. <laughs> Apparently, if you need a bum, you call this guy. This is the bum from Back to the Future. Oh, the well, yeah, the one sleeping on the bench that curses Marty for waking him up. Yes, that is the same bum. So what do you think that his headshot and the information on the back is? Do you think it's him looking all disheveled and... <laughs> <laughs> Dirty, and then the back says, played homeless man here, played homeless man on this show. <laughs> it's really weird later in the movie to see him in a tux, because I just thought he was typecast as a bum. And they just buy him off later on. He has done other work, but... And again, there's other little details, like in San Antonio, I, I get, I already brought up the stand with Rowdy walking all the way from Denver. In San Antonio, there's a cold wiping out people and people going crazy over some dream they're having. That Again, that feels very Stephen King to me, having just done the stand recently and watched that. There are these little details that really have me interested. What is going on? What is the answer to this mystery what's driving people crazy what's giving them these headaches what is this crazy guy on the tv talking about i guess and we'll talk about this as we go through i love the concepts carpenter is putting in here while this is based on that short story and that comic book he also says he's basing it on things like invasions of the body snatchers quite clearly marjorie sees v in it i definitely see some of that as well some of the thing but he's doing a very good job world building but what he's not doing a very good job of, and I consider this indicative of the latter half of Carpenter's work, like 85 and onward, he's just not very good at the time management and figuring out where he should spend the time because this movie is going to move fast through some pretty big ideas. And you're talking about these people dying of the cold and everything. We never leave L.A., I'm not sure when this movie's credits roll, are the Fascinators just in L.A.? Are they going to move other places? Is this a worldwide phenomenon? What's going on with them? I don't think Carpenter ever had in mind that this could be a franchise. Looking at this today, if they were to remake this today, I could see the They Live series. Or you know, Honestly, they'd probably do it for TV. They would make it like V, and it would be the pilot movie we'd see here, and then week after week, more fascinator versus human warfare or something but given that this entire universe has to take place in 90 minutes all this setup all this intrigue not a lot of it pays off where i get my bliss in this movie is really act two when the police come and raid the shanty town this is our first action in this action horror film and there the cops are as scary as anything else i mean they're almost faceless they had these blank faces, they showed no emotion as they stood behind their shields and literally a bulldozer ran down their tents. I thought that the inhumane way with which they roused the homeless was as scary as anything in this film. Yeah, it, it did seem kind of quaint to me after living through watching what happened in Ferguson with all those different protests. Like, 
this would be very different if it was filmed today. There would have been the tear gas and all the, the flamethrowers, all those different things that were used now that our police are militarized. But yeah, I, this is still a, a scary image with these cops walking in. They're in riot gear, that which give them that faceless appearance. They're just beating people. Like you said, Marjorie, that there was just a shooting of a homeless guy this past weekend in Los Angeles that's gotten a lot of people upset because there's like, Five cops on one guy, and they had tasers, and they had batons, and yeah, so this, again, not saying, trying to get political here and saying, oh, this person did the wrong thing, so they deserved what hap- what the cops did to them. Just watching a state military-type force come in, the police state, and just beat these people for basically not having enough money to live in a home. It- it's scary stuff. Later on, we'll see them just pulling that preacher into a back alley and beating him and one of the other leaders of this revolution and just beating him. I, I assume they were just going to die from that. They'll show up later, but my assumption was that was their death. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also thought we were going to see the deaths of these characters. That we don't doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because we're going to find out later some are still alive and still resisting and the one who seemed not involved at all, the bum, is going to become a multimillionaire and be bought off so that he doesn't tell people what he knows? Are they non-violent fascinators? Do they not want to kill us unless they have to? Later on, they will come in with guns, but... Well, Arnie, this goes to what you said was your complaint. That there's all this world building, but what does it add up to? And I do agree that I feel like Carpenter is trying to tackle some big ideas and not all the little details get in there. Like, what we'll, we'll learn that Earth is a third world nation to these fascinators that if you ever read, especially Marxist theory on what capitalist societies do to third world nations to keep them poor, there's all these little ideas like that, but we never know what they're really mining or what they're taking from Earth, just that they're using us as a resource and they need to control us like sheep in order to get whatever they need. Yeah, there, there's a lot of vague things here. I do feel like they don't want to cause too many problems. They, they don't want to cause a big ruckus or people might wake up, but they got to do enough to keep uh, these little revolutionary groups under control. What was the rating on this? It was R. It's got to be it, R. It yeah. was R. Okay. Just making sure. I mean, it had a lot of violence, but... And it had a titty shot. Yeah. Okay. Boobs. <laughs> it's America. That's enough to give it an R rating. Well, yes, they're scary. But I, I guess I, you're right about the preacher and the pirate video guy. I, I would expect a gruesome death for them since they're being beat to death by these aliens or humans under mind control. And given that's an R rating, I would expect that to be pretty clear that they were dead. Yeah, I'd like to at least have seen them escape or something to give it a reason for it later on. Because otherwise... These fascinators just seem fairly incompetent. Well, there was just a bunch of tattletales, Arnie. <laughs> All they do is talk into their watch like Michael Knight. Yeah, we never do see, like, the leaders of these fascinators. Nada, he's going to go into that church. He went in there earlier, and you see, like, lenses and chemicals. They were doing something, and he knew there was one secret compartment there. He goes into this church after the police come in. And they were showing IMAX 3D movies, right? Because that's <laughs> what those sunglasses looked like to me. <laughs> 
Well, the church is all done up now. It looks like a normal church, but he knew about a secret compartment where he finally gets the glasses. Like, this is where I think the movie's starting, is like getting to these glasses sooner. Not that I've thought this is lagged, but this is where the whole mystery comes into revelation and where I think a lot of the iconic imagery of this film comes into place once he gets these special glasses. I agree. And we're 35 minutes into the movie and have one hour left for all the iconography to kick in. That's the one complaint I have. Not that necessarily I think it needs to move faster. I think it would be a mistake to have him find out about the Fascinators 15 minutes in. And I didn't feel it was dragging. I just feel it's not left enough time for where this is going to go. But I do love it when he gets the glasses and God, how obvious is this symbolism? All of a sudden, ooh, the world is in black and white. (laughs) Yes. It makes it different and good. It's also a simple way to kick off, like, when he puts on these glasses, he knows to keep them on because things have all of a sudden totally changed. It's not like he put them on and, oh... It's not that sunny out. I'm going to take him off. Never discovers their secret. Like It's Los Angeles. Wouldn't he just wear them to be cool? Good point. Yeah. Not a lot of people wearing sunglasses in this version of L.A. But yes, he puts on the glasses. Everything goes black and white. He sees the secret messages. I. This is what you think of what they live. Obey. Consume. I, you want to talk about the most obvious hit over the head symbol here. He looks at the money and it's like, this is your God. Yeah so fantastic with the glasses and the black and white and it really gives the audience a nice differentiation point from trying to figure out what they're supposed to be seeing i like the way carpenter drips the information because it does start with the billboards and it starts with one billboard he's looking at a billboard for computer stuff and it has a secret message and then he looks at a second one and then he goes to the magazine racks and he's walking past the magazines and yeah i tried to get as many of these messages as I could to try to figure out what are the things John Carpenter thinks we're doing. And it's thing I found some minor ones. Like, they almost sound like Dilbertisms. Reward indifference. <laughs> Inaction. Do not question authority. Watch TV. Conform. Sleep. Sleep. One actually says sleep eight hours every night. Wow. (laughs) I wish I got eight hours of sleep every night. I know. How do we obey this? Quit podcasting. That's. (laughs) (laughs) I get a real Matrix moment here. Like I I feel like the Wachowskis, maybe he took something from this. Again, and here's a world. You think you know what's going on, but you're really asleep. You put on the glasses. You wake up. You see the world behind the world. To me, this is, I guess, a timeless science fiction counterculture type message that, you know, you got to wake up. You got to see what's really going on behind the curtain. I guess it goes all the way back to The Wizard of Oz. But this is, I I like, again, how blunt it is in this film. It's starring a wrestler. I'm not expecting Shakespearean-type acting here. Uh, This whole fascinator, I'm fascinated by the fascinators. When he finally looks at one, it's just a quick glimpse. And yeah, it looks like an inside-out man. It's And he's got to turn back to him. I love how that guy just keeps watching him like he thinks he knows he's been found out. This was a pretty cheap film at $3 million. I think that... The black and white, yes, it's symbolic, and yes, it does show that it's different. And you're right, Jacob, Wizard of Oz, oh my god, it is exactly Wizard of Oz in reverse. He's seeing the real world just like Dorothy's real world was black and white and her fantastical world was color. Never even thought about that. I also think it helped to add 
to the mystery and the horror of these fascinators. I mean, they look like zombies. They look like ghouls. They look like fleshless beings. They got these patches missing all over their face, a little Freddy Kruegerish, and their eyes seem to reflect in this black and white light. And I'm like, these look so creepy in black and white. At the very end of the movie, we'll finally get to see them in color. Not nearly as scary if those had been walking around the entire time. Those remind me of like the early scenes in Romero's Dawn of the Dead when they just had baby powder zombies all over the place. That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, you're right. There is something about them getting less detail on them, seeing a so stark black and white that really brings out the horror of whatever these fascinators are. But there is this battle of ideas, you know, black and white. This is a film about ideology. Do you go along with the status quo or do you try to break free and wake yourself up, not be a sheeple, as some might say. There's all these different phrases, and I feel like there's certain uh, political aspects that uh, try to take this, oh, you got to be your own person, and try to co-op that for their own purposes. But yeah, that's what's going on here. It's a black and white struggle. Which side are you going to be on? He jumps to the conclusion that the right answer is to kill all the aliens very, very quickly. (laughs) I I would say... (laughs) Right conclusion, I don't think he thinks it through, like, okay, he's going to take out a couple of cops, grab their guns, and just start shooting, like, no, you probably want to go underground, get a resistance going, get some strategy. At least figure out the plan and their capabilities before you just start shooting. No one said he was a brain trust. And the fact that he is homeless and living in a shanty town without any prospects of going to L.A. So he went to L.A., didn't have a job lined up. It's not really good on the planning there. Well, I agree with you. What this movie is saying is it's not because he's not bright. It's not because he doesn't think it through that he's a homeless person in a shanty town. It's because he's not in league with the fascinators and they're doing everything they can to keep the people down for whatever their means are. Slave labor, food. I think they bring up a few possibilities in this that they never go through. But yeah, I didn't even ever think about this because it's a John Carpenter movie, Assault on Precinct 13, Escape from New York. I know what this movie is about before I've ever seen this movie. I know it's an action horror sci-fi mashup. So when he starts shooting people, I go with it. But apparently, according to Carpenter, a lot of people turn on this character when he goes vigilante in their terms. Is when he just goes off the rails and decides he's going to start killing all the others. Because if you look at it as the fascinators are Republicans... The regular people are Democrats, and then there's some collaborators who may be, I don't know, libertarians. If you just started shooting all the Republicans, is this not a madman's fantasy? Could this almost not be this Philip K. Dickian Blade Runner? There are no fascinators, and Roddy Roddy Piper is just fucking nuts. Well, yeah, I would love to see a movie really explore this. Yeah, He is a homeless guy. A lot of people are homeless because of mental illness. Like, there is a string that you could take to explore that. I, I think even in The Matrix, when you realize that Neo and Morpheus, like, at the end of the first Matrix film, they just start shooting up security people. They could be seen as terrorists. They could be seen as the crazy people. And I, I would love to see a more nuanced take on this. But, yeah, I guess if you identify with Republicans and you feel like this movie's making fun of you, you are going to turn on Nada here that when he just starts shooting every fascinator he sees. Are they playing with maybe he's mentally ill? Maybe he's crazy. 
he's not really seeing this. No, I think that would make a, a more nuanced film and be, I would love to see something like that. This isn't that kind of film though. No, it's just the thought I had very briefly. If nobody else saw this but him, the whole movie, then yes, because they do play with it a little bit. Well, later on when he's with Holly, Holly's like, I'll put on the glasses and even if I don't see what you see, I'll tell you I do, you know? That's the closest it comes. I do like that moment. Like, I'm just going to say whatever you want me to say because you have a gun. Again, these ideas of a force and like, how do you get people to buy into your ideology? She's just going to go along with it because there's a crazy dude with a gun. Later on, Frank, he doesn't want to buy into it at all. There, it's going to lead up to a big fight where he's forced to put on those glasses. Like, there is the possibility that Nada is crazy until later on when we finally see that other people could see what he can. But for a long time, He's the only one seeing this that we know of. I have never entertained the thought that he's just crazy. But that's interesting that people turn on him. I would think people get behind him kind of like they do Kurt Russell in Escape from New York. Yes, and exactly. And you know why? It's because he's got the lines. This is where the one-liners start coming out. And that tells you unequivocally this is that kind of movie. This is, I'm looking at the contemporaries of the time when I say Jean-Claude Van Damme, <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger, Steven Seagal type of flick. No, this is what you did. You did your one-liners. Yeah, this is where you get, I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum. I don't know why you would say that when you're entering a bank to shoot aliens, but it's so badass. Like, mama don't like tattletales. Like, again, This goes so into action parody for me. I'm laughing. I'm having a good time. I noticed the score. This is where I think the score almost takes a Western styling to it as he's shooting up this bank. You know, you think of Westerns and bank robberies. But to me, this almost becomes an action parody with all these one-liners that Nada's throwing out. And I think it would have been helped had these one-liners been thrown by a much better actor. It might not be such a parody. But no one is going to accuse Roddy Roddy Piper of selling out and being an actor. Yeah, I know he's on It's Always Sunny now, but... You know what? I'm going to damn with faint praise and say (laughs) Roddy isn't that bad. Oh, he's not that bad, but he is not going to win an Oscar, an Emmy, or anything. He's not bad enough to win a Razzie either, I don't know. No, (laughs) no. I believe him in all this film. I'm watching this movie, and I keep thinking, God... Why couldn't it have been Kurt Russell? I mean, he'd just done Big Trouble in Little China with Carpenter. Obviously, they were still friendly. I started this movie thinking I would review it and feel that it would be better with Russell. But I actually think the bravado that Piper brings from his WWE days really works for this. And when he's playing paranoid, when he's playing headachey, when he's playing hurt, I buy it all. At no point is he worse than what this role calls for. But given that this role was written with him in mind, it doesn't call for much either. Yeah, and th- again, this is a blunt movie. There is no nuance, really, in this film. Again, black and white world. This actor is fine. Roddy's fine here. He's, you know, you want an action, sci-fi, horror film. Yeah, why not? You need someone to sh- shoot a shotgun a bunch of times? He does it as well as John claude or Arnold could have done it. And probably commanded a lot less of a price tag. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what I'm thinking here is capitalize on the WWF fame and get a cheap action star. Apparently, though, Carpenter met him, you know, a couple years before and decided, I want to work with this guy. And it wasn't just we couldn't afford the stars we wanted. 
But yes, after Big Trouble in Little China and things, Carpenter wasn't getting the budgets that other directors might have been at the time either. And that really shows with the flying saucers. Other than the makeup in full color, the only shoddy effect in this whole thing are the flying saucers. And when he shoots it, just some awful superimposed images and miniature work. Yeah, that was pretty bad, especially like when there's explosions and it cuts back to the color scene of him and there's nothing there and it's just him like reacting. (laughs) Well, could other people not see it? If we're seeing the color scene, maybe it's not there. Yeah, okay. That's a good way to cut down in your special effects budget. All the cool stuff's happening black and white behind the glasses, but we're going to show you the color version. Now, the act. Tris, who I do think is beneath the role, although there's not much to this role either. I thought she was a much larger player in this film than she was. Meg Foster as Holly Thompson. Now, you know who she was? She was in another big 80s movie that I really love. She was Evil Lynn and He-Man. Masters of the Universe? Yes, with, with Dolph, Dolph Lundgren and Courtney Cox. Okay. She was terrible as Evil Lynn. She's terrible <laughs> here. I don't think she's a good actress, is what this boils down to. Yeah, I never know what's up with her character. We'll talk about it. She seems kind of robotic in her acting. Her character seems like she, she was told to play it robotic. Like, I, we'll find out she's with the fascinators, but she's not a fascinator. And yeah, not great, though. I always thought that, especially as I became an adult and be more aware of sexuality, that maybe there was more written for her and Nada to have some sexual tension other than that, oh my God, this crazy motherfucker, the gun is going to rape me. And that is tension of a sexual variety. (laughs) Yes. But I kind of felt that there always should have been an attraction there. And maybe there was some of that left on the cutting room floor because it really makes no sense. Yeah, there's some lip service paid to that later on in the film. But I never felt like there was a thing between them. Like Nada is going to take his glasses off again. We're going to get some lip service, how these glasses make him high. It never really pays off or means anything, except he gets to wear contacts for the rest of the film that does the same thing without the contact high. But yeah, I feel like there's supposed to be a relationship. He's like looking for her later on in this film, but why? I don't know. She throws him out a window. Yeah, I I think that there was something cut out or somebody had some idea because I feel that there is like a big chunk in the middle missing of why we should care about this relationship. Yeah, I didn't get it either. I watched all the bonus features on the Shout Factory special edition of this. Great picture and everything, but no, I didn't find anything that really helps their relationship more. It just never worked for me why later on Nada feels this attraction to the woman who cold cocks him and knocks him out. Maybe, though, that is the way to Roddy Rowdy Piper's heart. Is <laughs> he is a wrestler. The more you beat the shit out of him, the more he likes you, because we're going to go straight from that <laughs> scene where she beams him and he loses his glasses to him getting new glasses and wanting Frank to wear them. And they get a hotel after this fight, so yes, you might be do. onto something. It's quite a fight. I, I find this funny. Like, Nada had a whole box of these glasses. He took one pair and hid the rest in a trash can, and then expects them to still be there. Luckily, he got there on trash day. They're still in the back of this garbage truck. But he does act really surprised that the garbage truck picked up these glasses. I thought the same thing you did, Jacob, but I watched it really closely. I get from Roddy Piper's nonverbal performance... (laughs) You say he has some nuance here? (laughs) Yes, that he was actually... My interpretation is he stole the box thinking it would be valuable. 
And then he's doing some mime work. And when he opens the box, you see his facial expression is crestfallen. He's not happy that it's sunglasses. He wants to throw it out, but it's he's afraid it's going to link to him. So he covers it in other garbage. And then he notices he's still holding one pair. And he looks like he's going to throw it in the garbage anyway. And he's like, ah, fuck it. It's just sunglasses. I'll keep this pair. He never had an intent of going way back for this. He read a lot into that performance. It's Piper's thespian skill speaking to me. There's nothing nuanced about a wrestler. I don't think there's anything nuanced about this acting here. Look, we're going to get a wrestling fight. Forget about nuance. Yeah, I, he's been trying to recruit Frank, because I guess that's the only other guy in L.A. that he knows, to be on his side. But by this time, Nada's face is on all the television. And it's weird, because Frank shows up. He's like, here's a week's pay. Throw some money at him because he knows Nada's on the run. And Nada just wants him to wear a pair of sunglasses. And Frank will have nothing to do with it, which rightly so. This dude is a cop killer, a murderer at this point, for all he knows. And that leads to the most epic fight. It makes no sense, though, because Frank came to this alleyway to give Nada money. So it's not like he considers Nada such a crazy fucker that he's not going to provide him help. Here, you can have my money, but I am not putting on your glasses. I'm sorry, but if I'm in the presence of a crazy person, I'm going to put on the fucking glasses. Now, I will admit, part of the reason I watched this movie for the very first time, as I talked about, Marjorie film-shamed me because we were watching South Park. Yes! There was an episode called Cripple Fight. Yes! And I think they do it almost shot for shot They do punch for punch. Apparently the timing is almost exact too, but I didn't get it. And Marjorie is next to me just (laughs) freaking out about they live. And that was the catalyst to make me finally go seek out this John Carpenter classic was this episode of South Park where Timmy and Jimmy have this fight where I'd never seen anyone kicked in the nuts quite so many times. Yeah, I could just imagine not knowing this film. Like, South Park, half-hour show, 20 minutes with commercials. This is a a five-and-a-half-minute fight. That is a quarter of its runtime. That's like a whole segment. Yeah, if you have not seen this movie, I don't know how you'd react to that fight, like not knowing why it just keeps going on forever. I mean, there are clotheslines. I was named – there's a DDT. I I was naming all the wrestling moves they were doing. This is a full-on wrestling match. I think Rowdy choreographed this thing. Well, no, Rowdy gets credited IMDb trivia. According to the commentary, there was a stunt coordinator who did a lot of it. And then Rowdy would say, well, why don't we throw this move in here, move this move in there? <laughs> the South Park not knowing this, the way it worked is, oh, they're fighting. That's funny. This keeps going. What's going on? This is still going? This is hysterical. It like came back out the other side of the funny. <laughs> Does Carpenter have a reason for why this goes on so long? It is not, as Wikipedia says, just because he saw the cuts and liked it and wanted to keep it this way. According to what he said in the interview, is he knew he just wanted a massive fight right here. And so when writing the script, you know, when writing a script, one page is supposed to be one minute of film time. And so he would put an entirely blank page with just the fight continues and you turn the next page, the fight continues and you turn the next page, the fight continues. He was going to leave it to the stunt guys to figure out what that meant, but he knew he wanted a fight that would last, you know, six minutes. I I have to go on record and say this might be the most badass fight in movies. 
I love how it ebbs and flows. Each one is winning. Each guy tries to walk away at one moment. It finally escalates and they grab melee weapons. And then <laughs> Nada realizes this is fucking nuts and like, like, dude, dude, we're done. And he starts to laugh, but Frank is pissed and just going to go after him even harder. I, I love the way this goes. It is brutal. I'm glad we have Marjorie here because this is such a guy's guy fight. It's nice to know women can enjoy it too. I think every guy I know would just be like, fuck yeah to this scene. But wait a second. I think you're assuming that I don't like things like this all the time. There are girls like me because I grew up with WWF and I love a good fight. In fact, I did not realize how much I liked UFC when we we're until we we're sitting at a bar one night and it was on and I'm like, holy shit, this is awesome. You Why? may actually like UFC because it's like they live, huh? <laughs> now, this fight is in fucking credible and apparently it was a little hard to film though because obviously Piper is a wrestler. He knows how to do these things safely. He knows how to take a fake punch? Yes. Okay. But Keith David, he's a tough-looking motherfucker, right? And he always plays a tough motherfucker. You don't fuck with Keith David. I don't care if we're talking Requiem for a Dream, Armageddon, or The Thing. He is tough. He was Moses, the kind Walmart photographer in From the Heart or something with Natalie Portman. Oh, wow. That's the Walmart baby movie, right? Yes, the Walmart baby movie. He was the kindly elderly photographer who got Novalee started on her photography hobby that changed her life. But still a badass motherfucker, right? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out he was a trained dancer. Really? Yeah. Oh, wait a second. And what kind of dance? Because I'm sorry, you look at trained dancers and you have people like Patrick Swayze, who was fucking elegant in every movement that man made. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily contradicts fighting. I watch martial arts film and to me that, that that's a ballet a lot of the times. I, I think dancing would give way to being a good fake fighter. Well, yes, and I, I agree with that. But I, what I'm saying, though, is that when you have trained dancers, like if you look at... Well, I guess Patrick Swayze again. <laughs> Everything he does is very well orchestrated and smooth and very lithe. Yep. And then John Travolta in some ways is like that too. He also had very smooth movements and was very graceful and tactful in his movements. And I never, ever got that from Keith David. So what kind of dance, Arnie? All he says on Twitter, and this was posted last August, <laughs> is he would upload an animated GIF of him dancing, but the sexiness would break the internet. He has done Broadway. If you look up his resume, it's professional actor and dancer. And he is not a fighter. And so he's trying to bring dance choreography to this fight. And Roddy Piper's trying to put him in a suplex or a half Nelson. Or But yeah, this fight is just so much fun. I don't know why you need a movie about aliens. This could just be the movie, right? And yet it's so fucking stupid that it's about put on the glasses. <laughs> but boys argue about stupid shit all the time, right? Yeah, but we don't usually knee each other in the nuts 18 times. It's like, Jacob, you son of a bitch. You didn't recommend that movie. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> this, this would be a very different podcast if that's how it was. I, you know what? I'm going to recommend it just to, to spare my nuts. <laughs> 
I mean, you two are the big fans of this movie. Don't you find this fight to be a little silly for the reasoning? Shouldn't there be something else? The fact that he came there to give Nada money and then they kick each other's ass? Haven't you ever been really passionate about something, Arnie? Not not putting on some sunglasses. <laughs> no, I do think it's silly. I think once Nada entered that bank and started throwing out the one-liners, I felt like this movie does get silly. I think by the end of this film, we're going to end on a punchline. Like I feel like, yeah, there's getting more and more comedic elements here. And again, this this entire huge long fight over putting on the glasses. Look, you can have a deep reading, and this is about the will to power and ideology and wanting to stay blind until you're beaten into submission. I also think it's just kind of silly, and Carpenter is having some fun here. But that's the whole result of it, because it was an awesome fight. Who cares if it was silly? It was fun. I love the makeup effects here. They're so much better than the Fascinator makeup effects, because the back of Keith David's head is raw. It looks like hamburger, and <laughs> all of the lacerations and swelling on Piper's face. When those two guys go to check into a hotel, <laughs> those two look so fucked up. Yeah, ain't love grand as they check in. And it, here we get a scene. I, I don't know how to take it. I feel like this is supposed to be the big pivotal moment where Nada is telling some story about, as a child, what, his dad beat him or something? I think that's where he's going, but it's not a very articulate story. I listened to this twice, and I think it's all to set up that as a child, he needed his dad, and now he's not a child anymore. Yeah, I ain't daddy's little boy no more. I feel like he just wanted to say that line and came up with this story. That, again, doesn't really pay off. I take back what I said earlier. When I said <laughs> that the script asked for nothing more than Piper could give... It does once. It is this scene. I did forget about this. This is the one moment that just, ooh, he, he's not an actor. It's coming right after the fight. I think I might have been on an adrenaline testosterone high during the scene. I'd been like, yeah, Roddy, fine, whatever, daddy. But <laughs> when you point it out, it is a fucked up scene that he cannot pull off. Kurt Russell could have done it, though. <laughs> but then they find out that the revolution is still going on. There's still this underground group. Yeah, and again, for timing, we are now an hour and ten into a 90-minute movie. So they finally join up with the Resistance, and they can now wear contact lenses. Yes. I had no memory of them getting contact lenses. I think that is a nice upgrade so that we don't have to have them wearing shades the whole end of the movie at night. But I love the cheesy-ass Ray-Bans. Yeah, I, I do love when they're just running around in sunglasses. I do feel like that's something very 80s to have the action heroes with machine guns and sunglasses. I got to say, though, I wear contacts. That is not how you put contacts in. Like no. That. You got to have a mirror. You got to see where your finger's going. You don't just kind of toss it in like you're tossing back an aspirin. <laughs> that is a painful scene to watch if you actually wear contacts. Yeah, that's totally unrealistic. Everything else in the movie, totally realistic. <laughs> it's the little things that sell it. <laughs> but yeah, they're in this resistance movement. All of the characters from the beginning have come back. It's like a revival. The bearded man survived. The blind preacher who was getting beat survived. All the people with no name. Yeah, only one of them has a name, and that's the guy who seemed to be leading the shantytown, Gilbert. But Holly returns, too. And what is Holly doing with the resistance movement? Obviously, 
I couldn't remember her turn later on, but when I see her there, I think obviously she's a spy, right? I took it as again, this is watching it only one or two times. I know where it's going now, but she is holding the glasses. So I always took it, oh, she finally looked through those glasses and saw what Nada saw and has decided to join the resistance movement, how she found him, how she got involved. I don't know. She just shows up, which is really suspicious now that I think about and know where this film is going. Yeah. And again, there seems to be a whole piece missing there as to why she shows back up because who cares? She's a plot device that we just didn't get the whole story on. I do think putting her in this scene makes it more realistic that Nada would think she's on the side of the resistance and thus want to save her. But what I don't understand, we didn't talk about it, but they have Chekhov's watch in this, where early <laughs> on, one of them's talking into their watch and turns the dial and just blinks away some kind of teleporter. And so when the big firefight comes here, and it's a hysterical firefight, you talk about people with guns and sunglasses. I mean, Roddy Piper in the trench coat just standing there as all these people are shooting at him, and he's one-handed shooting a machine gun. I have fired some pretty low-caliber guns. You cannot do that one-handed. I don't care how big your guns are. And I mean, bicep says guns. <laughs> Well, he wanted to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. He yeah. wanted to be badass like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who can cock a 12-gauge shotgun with one arm. Well, he could like 40 years ago, but probably right now he can't. But They get pinned down, and they need to jump into this hole. And I'm like, where are they going to go? Are they going to go to another world? Are they going to go to another dimension? They're going to the UHF building, U-22 or whatever <laughs> it is. Yeah. Cable 54, yeah. <laughs> and... How did Holly get there? I mean, how did Holly get from wherever the resistance movement was to the cable company in the same amount of time as they did with a teleportation watch? Well, I take it, uh, I think she's been bought off. She was there. The police move in on this resistance, a great explosion that like catches your attention as they're about to have this moment between Nada and Holly, and then boom. I, I always took it as, oh, she's the one who told him where this resistance was. They're transporting her around. Oh, I think you're right, Jacob, because she said right away earlier that she's the assistant director and she knows her station's transmissions are clean. Mm -hmm. So therefore, she was bought off after her encounter with Nada. I had taken it as she was always a collaborator. Because she was in the media, and thus everyone would be collaborating. But now, the fact that she would say their signals are clean, thus indicating to Nada that it's a single satellite corrupting all the other images, that's an, a new take for me. But when he first kidnapped her in her car, she did have the blank stare like the Fascinators. But he looked at her through the glasses. She's True. obviously not one. But the cops that even weren't Fascinators were very blank stares. So she could have been under their control then. Bad script writing or intentional <laughs> yeah. mystery? Only John Carpenter knows for sure. <laughs> he didn't say so on the commentary, I guess. But yeah, I, I took it as at some point, either before the film or after her encounter with Nada, she gets bought off. She's under suspicion to me when, as soon as we find out she works at the cable station where Nada and Frank end up going when they go through this teleportation hole that conveniently is malfunctioning so you can only stay open for 10 seconds. Enough time for them to get through, but not the other cops that are trailing them. And they have to go 
right into what is this building? It's like a subterranean fortress with a gala ballroom where all of the world or at least the nation's elite are gathering to pat themselves on the back for increasing profit 30 some percent by keeping the poor man down and and don't forget it's got something that where gravitation bends the light and people are able to go to their home planet through some really bad special effects it's an airport it's a gala ballroom it's a cable station i believe they call it a multi-purpose room That's a multi-purpose subterranean hideout is what this is. I love Carpenter for having the ideas. I damn Carpenter for asking the questions that have no relevancy to this movie. Why did we need to know about the airport? I guess we wanted to know how the aliens are getting to Earth. And if you destroy the satellite, does it stop them from coming? I'm not really sure. But at this moment, he has created an intergalactic epic with the thing, the great thing about that alien was it was confined the whole point was to keep it trapped at the base and that way it doesn't spread here this has spread to such a degree and when we're finding all this out we are 10 minutes away from the end we're being told all of this through horrible exposition from the bum who was bought off for no reason I can imagine. I forgot who this bum was. I'm like, oh, I've seen that face somewhere in this film. And it Back to the Future. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And because it's mostly homeless people, I'm like, okay, it's got to be one of the homeless people. I did go back to figure out who he was later, but because no one has names here, yeah, I was confused at first where he's like, oh, you guys got bought off too? You should have dressed up for this. They're just walking into the ballroom with guns and work clothes, and everybody's like, oh, you're supposed to be here. Yeah, I really do feel like this film is hurt by its low budget, especially here at the end where they are trying to wrap this stuff up, where they're going for some big ideas, and they don't have the money to pull it off. Is it money? Could they have done more with more money? Maybe they could have made the film longer, because I think if you're going to go here... This is the great twist to bring on the climax. You find all this out between the 60 and 90 minute mark. And then from the 90 minute to the 120 minute mark, you come up with your plan to stop them. But in this movie, we're finding all this out. We're literally being walked around. We're given a tour by the Back to the Future bum. And he's explaining it all. And then at the last minute, they get to the news station. Frank and Nada just start shooting fascinators and shooting reporters and we're gonna wrap this whole thing up damn fast and faster than the movie deserves given that we spent a half an hour just showing us there is a conspiracy to wrap it all up in 10 minutes counting credits is unfulfilling what's weird is so we get to the top of this cable building i don't know how far underground we were but all of a sudden we're at the top of the building where the satellite is holly and Frank are together. Holly turns and shoots Frank. Big surprise there, I guess. And watching it now, it's no surprise. But It was a surprise to me watching it this time. Okay. When I was a child, it was a big deal. I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't remember this. And the fact that she puts the gun to his head and then we cut away. We don't get to see the blood splatter. That probably is a budgetary thing. Maybe an X rating thing because in the late 80s, the MPAA were dicks. They still are. But... <laughs> I wasn't sure if she maybe just put a gun to his head because she thought they were terrorists and murderers or what. Not until she's on the roof and she reveals her full complicity that I understand, no, 
she's evil the, at least the latter half of the movie. And Nada takes her out easily. Like, there doesn't seem to be much of a conflict. Like, hey, I had a thing for you, which, again, begs the question, did he have a thing for her? I, at times they play it that way. But I think he had more of a thing for Frank, and he's more upset over that. <laughs> What's really weird, I didn't know you could blow up a satellite by just shooting it with a bullet. Oh, yeah. Common knowledge, Jacob. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. What's really weird is the troops coming after Nada are using leftover props from Ghostbusters. The PKE yes! meters <laughs> yes! are how they're trying to track a human. I I noticed that. They're like, they're on the 19th floor. I'm like, no, they don't got no ectoplasm. They're not ghosts yet. <laughs> I couldn't believe they pulled out Ghostbusters props. This was done on the cheap. They just found him sitting around. But you're right, Jacob. When you said it ends on a joke, I mean, we have this tragic moment that Nada gives his life to shoot that satellite dish. But thank God that one bullet was like the proton torpedo down the thermal <laughs> exhaust port for these aliens. And I love that he dies while flipping them off, too. Yes, I mean, the last yes. scene of him is given the finger. You, you know what this end reminds me of? And we're going to get this joke. You know, this satellite blows up. All of a sudden, people could see these fascinators on TV, see what they really look like. We get a Siskel and Ebert joke where they're like saying Romero and Carpenter. They just go too far. This ending... Almost seems like the original ending that Romero wanted to do for Dawn of the Dead, where he wanted the characters to commit suicide and jump up into the propellers of the helicopter because it was so hopeless. Like, this whole ending, Frank dies, then Holly dies, then Nada dies, and he's just, like, sitting there flipping the bird. This goes for that kind of ending that Romero ended up backing away from in Dawn of the Dead. I just, I can't think of any other movie that ends on the titty shot. Yes, that's usually, you put that up front, MPAA is more forgiving because, okay, you're going to forget about that. But no, this ends on a titty shot. Like, I, you're in the last few minutes of this film, and yeah, it's some chick fucking a fascinator. But it is a way to hell of a glut. So Jacob, Marjorie, do you recommend they live? Like, I have to ask. Jacob. <laughs> Yeah, Marjorie, I think you're right. This is about extremes, about excessiveness. This is Carpenter's balls-out political film, like no subtlety here. We're going to have one-liners as aliens slash Republicans are blown away in banks. We're going to have this gratuitous fight scene. We're going to have this sense of humor at the end. I, I think it's even funny when Nada's just flipping off the fascinators right right at the screen. There's just something so raw about this film that I'm attracted to. Yeah, there are problems. There are problems with this script. There are problems with, what's the deal with Holly? Who knows? What, what's the motivation for Frank not just putting on the glasses instead of having to go through this big fight? It's not really clear. But it's the rawness of this film that I'm drawn to. It's this statement coming at the end of the 80s, wrapping up that decade, trying to, you know, put your stamp on how we need to change. There's a lot of talk about how we need to start getting along, stop fighting, even though we've seen characters punching each other for a six-minute scene. But really, it's about peace and love. And I love Carpenter's sensibility. I love the score here. I, I even like the humor in that this film is kind of raw and all over the place. But yeah, strong recommend for me. Marjorie. This movie, it's about extremes. You have the amazing fight scene. You get the weird lines that just seem like somebody's smoking some crack and they're coming up with these one-liners. Or It's a slam dunk. You've got great action, ridiculousness, and aliens. And you get me because you've got this like perfect storm of wonderfulness in this movie. It's great. Don't go in expecting you're going to get something Terminator level because you're not. It's just... as 
great, fun, balls-to-the-wall movie. So I do strongly recommend this movie. And I'm going to recommend this movie. I'd recommend the second act of it as strongly as you both have recommended the whole film. Everything from the moment he puts on the glasses to that fight is a super strong highest of high recommends. Unfortunately, that's one-third of the film, and the other two-thirds is indicative of Carpenter's later work. Again, we're talking Prince of Darkness, Escape from Los Angeles, John Carpenter. I considered Escape for L.A. for one of my underrated films, till Marjorie took this. I, I disagree with you. <laughs> I've only seen it the one time. I felt it was enough. I have a feeling they're going to reboot it eventually. Surfing and basketball and Steve Buscemi. Come on. This is more in the mouth of madness, John Carpenter, than it is Halloween, Christine, The Thing, John Carpenter. So that's a problem. I consider his career to have really peaked in the early 80s. And this is the late 80s. Still, I love the lines. I love the concept. It's not his concept, but he's the one who said, let's take that concept and run with it. I love the way he attempts a political statement <laughs> and it's on a budget that someone who's not a fascinator would have approved so yes i'm definitely going to give this a recommend but yeah it definitely fits in the underrated movies we recommend category i think this has a cult hit this movie did not do well it opened at number one it made its money back but it died really quickly after release and was considered a commercial failure at the time. And it has found an underground audience. I don't think it's found the wide audience that it needs to. Yeah, if you're putting this with Prince of Darkness and Escape from L.A., definitely it's one that could be underrated. <laughs> I actually saw this in theaters, and I'm pretty sure we saw it opening weekend because my brother was such a huge Roddy Roddy Piper fan. If you saw it in theaters, it was probably opening weekend. There weren't too many other weekends. <laughs> but yes, this is a reveal of one of the 100, or if we hit our stretch goal, 125 movies we're going to be reviewing in the book. That's a total of 300, or if we hit our stretch goal, 375 movie reviews because it's three people reviewing each movie in there. So that is a lot of content, but we really need your help. If you've been kind of sitting back on the sidelines as thousands and thousands of you have been and waiting to see how this Kickstarter goes, we could really use the help. Head to the Kickstarter page. There's a link. There's a big banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com and make a pledge. And there's rewards there. You're going to get something out of it. We're funded. You're going to get something out of it. You can get a shirt. You can get a postcard. You can get an exclusive podcast. Yeah, shocker. Or... <laughs> Super 8, one we said we'd never do, we're going to do. If you were one of the people way back when we had the Green Lantern Super 8 vote and you were pissed that Green Lantern won, here's your chance to make it right and back our project. We got more Kubrick with A Clockwork Orange and what, a, a musical? I'm not sure. I've never seen Marjorie's pick. You haven't? No. Oh my God. Xanadu. It, it's just mind-bogglingly confusing. But you only have... 12 more days at the Kickstarter, then it's done. And I know sometimes when we do the donation drives, I get emails. Hey, I just missed it by a couple of hours. This is Kickstarter's rules. Once it's done, it's done. The rewards are gone. 
and they don't take money until it's over. Yeah, so if it's not payday, you don't need to worry about it. You just got to have the money when the project ends. Which is March 19th. And again, I want to just stress the deepest thanks. We are all incredibly touched by the people who have pledged as much as they've pledged. The fact that we got 100% funded in just under two weeks is amazing, but we'd really love to get the printed book, hit that stretch goal, do the audio book so many people want. That's not going to be a short show like this podcast. We're going to be talking probably for 20 to 30 hours somewhere in there on this audio book. A huge undertaking you could help us achieve. So we'll be back on Tuesday with our regularly scheduled podcast review of The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. And until then, they live, you sleep. been with us. Those things out there. Maybe they love it. Seeing us hate each other. Watching us kill each other off. Feeding on our own cold fucking hearts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. This world may have blinded me, but the Lord has let me see. You'll be back. You'll be back. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another movie review. Hey, there's no sleeping on this site, so you park your ass someplace else tonight. Excuse me. Then when do I get paid? Thursday. And don't forget, at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find a link to our Kickstarter page to help fund the first Now Playing Podcast book. Look, buddy, I don't want no house today. Either pay for it or put it back. The details and the link are at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. Yo, one week's pay. It's the best I can do. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find more movie reviews, including Batman, Superman, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, The Fantastic Four, The Avengers, and hundreds more. Freedom must insist. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Obviously, not getting to enough people because look at our numbers tonight. There should be twice as many of us here. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. I don't like nobody following me unless I know why. Well, I don't join up with anybody until I see where he's going. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Come on in join the party, man. See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. Look! Look at them! They're everywhere! Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. You have given us entree to the resources we need in our ongoing quest for multidimensional expansion. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. The human power elite. 
now playing, is edited by Arnie. He's giving me a headache. Yeah, tell me about it. It starts to feel like a knife turning in your skull. Now playing, credit narration by Brock. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Now playing is not affiliated with Universal Pictures, Caracol Pictures, or the makers or distributors of these films. The film discussed in this podcast is the intellectual property of its copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Can somebody please explain to me what the hell that's all about? Just that idiot licking his nuts again. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business, ain't none of yours. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Mama don't like tattletales. I'll see you later. I'll see you later. See you, boys. Well, Arnie is a big Ronald Reagan fan. Uh-oh. So we may have a rumble here. She's joking about a paper I wrote when I was six. <laughs> he was the greatest president ever. I was in first grade. I wrote a paper about how Ronald Reagan was the world's best president because he was going to outlaw abortion, and it was kept by my parents, and Marjorie Wow, laughed. this does not sound like the Arnie that I know. <laughs> or perhaps he was an alien back then. <laughs> I can't think of any other movie off the top of my head that stars a homeless protagonist. Now I'm running through my mind trying to think of one. This is an odd thing. If somebody is scanning my thoughts, they're sitting there going, what is going on right now? <laughs> the fascinators are really trying to figure you out. I actually had a note in my notes that said, sun's out, guns out for that scene. <laughs> because, I mean, but- because you love 22 Jump Street? <laughs> well, yes, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> You know, black and white. That, that's what it comes down to. There are no Fifty Shades of Grey here. It's, oh, thank it's, God. Uh, I do not want to see Roddy <laughs> B- Rowdy Piper with the collar. Oh. And the mullet. With, with Frank when they get that hotel together later on. Oh, my God. Is it Michael Douglas in Escape from New York? Kurt Douglas. Kurt, Kurt Douglas. Kurt, no, Kurt, Kurt, uh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, yeah. They're all the same. They have the same mullet. <laughs> What's wrong with my tongue? Is it bleeding or are you drinking something red? Oh, I, I put some cherry stuff in okay. my soda. <laughs> I honestly thought her mouth was like bleeding, like she bit her tongue. It was a hemorrhaging. And- I did hit my nose, remember? Yeah, but... <laughs> Thompson. Now, you know who she was? She was in another big 80s movie that I really love, which might need to go on my list. She was evil Lynn and He-Man. Masters of the Universe? Yes, with, with Dolph, Dolph Lundgren and Courtney Cox. Okay, you've forgotten our book is underrated movies we recommend. I not love that movie. Sh- not shit films that are guilty pleasures. That might be our next book, but this <laughs> book, you'd actually have to recommend that one. And Courtney Cox teaching He-Man to eat fried chicken. That was the best you, scene. You guys remember way more about this than anyone should. I, I don't even remember fried chicken in that film. Oh, yeah, the whole scene. And they're like, oh, wait, this I is- have blocked that 
out because that shit all over He-Man. One of my favorite cartoons. Mine too. It was great. I have not seen it since theaters. I'll never forget Courtney Cox and the chicken. You guys are hurting me. Oh, man. I've never gone back to that one after I saw it in theaters. (laughs) Man, it's so great. <laughs> there was no Orko. Like, it had nothing to do with that fucking cartoon. <laughs> oh There's some fucking hairy wizard midget. That, that's all I remember. <laughs> but it was so bad, it was good. That's the next book. That's not this book. This book is good, but it doesn't call, get called good. Not so bad, it's good. <laughs> He's trying to bring dance choreography to this fight, and Roddy Piper's trying to put him in a souflex or something. <laughs> oh, wait, did you just call it, like, a souffle? A souflex? <laughs> Suplex. Oh, why did you bother correcting him? I like the souflex. <laughs> I like it with eggs and cheese. Spare him a little mockery on the forums. <laughs> I don't know, with Roddy Piper's hair, maybe a full Nelson. That's also a move. That is a move, too. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a move. It's also a band of some blondes with long hair. No, that's just Nelson. There right. Is, there's no Nelson that's a wrestling move. Right. Although it might just be a lame move. I don't know. <laughs>